Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, hello, everybody. Rick Martinez in for Don Curtis at this edition of Carolina Newsmakers. We've got Mitch Kokai. He is the senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. And Mitch, thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick. Always happy to do it. And the John Locke Foundation basically is one of those groups that uh, argues for uh, solutions and policies that are based in free market and freedom. Did I get that right? That's right. And limited government, relying on the Constitution, rule of law, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Oh, well, how's it working out? Is it you, you having <laughs> much success? And I should say that you guys uh, pretty much um, – focus on state level uh, government, right? We do. If people are familiar with the Heritage Foundation or the Cato Institute, American Enterprise Institute, those are national level groups based in and around Washington, D.C. that do about the same thing that we do on a state level. So Mm -hmm. we're focusing on what's going on with the General Assembly and the governor's office, the courts, to some extent, local government. But back to your initial somewhat flippant question, Uh, Sometimes things go well, but even when they're going well generally, you need to have watchdogs making sure Mm. that things are going right. Because even if people are uh, ideologically attuned to the notion of free markets and limited government, once people get into power, they always like to say, okay, how can I reward my friends and and allow my buddies to to benefit? And and that's always something you got to be on the watch out for, whoever's in charge of government. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I worked in state government recently for about three years uh, for Governor Governor McCrory. And basically, it it really kind of hit me that um, really about the only thing government can do is spend money. You know, and obviously they, you know, take the money and they buy vehicles and fill potholes and all that sort of things. But once you get beyond that uh, core group of services, um Everything else is just basically spending money. If you need, uh, if you want, you know, want to improve this, that's going to take money. And, I mean, and that's basically what you uh, keep your eye on, right? Yeah, that's true. And you know, a lot of people talk about government spending as if it's investment. And some things that government spends money on certainly is an investment. Uh, some of the money that's spent on education, you're investing in helping young people better themselves so they will not only reward themselves in the future but benefit society. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what government is doing is taking money from one group and giving it to another group. Mm -hmm. Now, I think most people would probably not have a problem if most of that transfer of money, government transfer, was from the rich to the poor. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the people who are not going to be able to fend for themselves – helping them out. I think most people, even conservatives, except perhaps some of the most arch libertarians, Mm -hmm. agree you need to have a safety net, help the poor. But a lot of what we have in government transfers is taking from the young and giving to not the (laughs) old, but the older who are doing well and Mm -hmm. better than the young, or taking from the working, hardworking, middle-class folks and giving it to the rich politically connected people. And that's one of the reasons why in politics, I think you've seen what is sort of a head scratcher in some respects that some people who like Donald Trump for his populist message also like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren for their populist message. Because all of them in many ways are talking about how the little guy gets hurt by the big, connected, powerful people. And that's a lot of what government does because of the way the incentive structure in government works. 
tell us where people can find out more about the John Locke Foundation because frankly sometimes you know uh, the foundation has been pretty good to Curtis Media Group and given us your uh, expertise uh, Becky Gray is on uh, often and so forth but uh, kind of like oh okay here's from the John Locke Foundation but you know there's a lot of people that means like John Locke I've heard their name but I really don't know you know kind of what they do where can people find out more about you there are really two good sites to, to look at on mm-hmm. the web. One of them is johnlock.org. And for those who are not familiar with John Locke, who was a 17th century English philosopher, yeah. his last name is an E, so it's J-O-H-N-L-O-C-K-E.org. That is sort of the organizational website that tells you a lot about the research that we do, uh, promotes upcoming events, that sort of thing. Then our the second website, and this is the one for people who are really interested in following the news of what's going on in government, that's carolinajournal.com. Mm. There is a monthly free print publication called Carolina Journal, and people who are interested in it can contact us and get on the, the mailing list for it. It comes out once a month, as I said, and it's free. We're happy to mail it to anyone who wants one. But in addition to the free print publication, every weekday at carolinajournal.com, we have fresh news stories, uh, commentaries, videos, uh, part of the uh, the radio program that we do. And uh, you're very familiar with that because mm-hmm. your spouse is the co-host of that program. Yeah. And uh, so there, are those two sites, johnlock.org and carolinajournal.com, will get people all they need to know about us. Now, um, I know you uh, concentrate on uh, you know state-level uh, uh, politics and, uh, and uh, policies and such, but my goodness, could you make sense of this impeachment thing uh, up in Washington, D.C.? Could you just like make sense of it for everyone here? Well, I don't know that I can make sense of it. I can tell you what uh, what I, I know of it. And I think your interpretation of where things go basically depends on where you stand politically and what you think about uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, Democrats have been seething about Donald Trump ever since he won the election. And in many respects, I think those who are Trump supporters and even those who aren't necessarily big Trump supporters but are lukewarm about what he's been doing, have have basically looked at what the Democrats have been up to and said, look, they've been trying ever since the guy won the election to get him out by hook or by crook. And so they tend to look at what's going on with this impeachment idea as this is just the latest thing to try to bring down Donald Trump or to at least uh, make him lose some popularity with the people who are supporters of him. Uh, on the Democratic side, the notion is that by contacting this leader of Ukraine and asking for help in trying to get information that might damage the potential front runner in the race to unseat Donald Trump in 2016, that that is beyond the pale, that is a high crime and misdemeanor worthy of impeachment. And so that's going to be playing out. Of course, one of the reasons that, that this is of interest and is not just some marginal thing is that Democrats control the U.S. House of Representatives, and the top representative in the House, Nancy Pelosi, has, after weeks and maybe even months of saying she wasn't really interested in approaching impeachment, has put her endorsement behind this idea of having a formal impeachment inquiry. The House would have the votes, if the Democrats all stick together, to actually impeach Donald Trump. 
Then, of course, it would move to the Senate where there would be a trial, and the Senate doesn't look as if it's going to have the votes to have any sort of vote to remove President Trump because you not only would need to have uh, a majority, but you need to have a supermajority of the Senate to Mm, remove a president. Exactly. And the only other time we've had a presidential impeach—well, we've had two. Uh, The the first time we had an impeachment trial, Andrew Johnson from Raleigh, uh, it was one vote short— and then when Bill Clinton was impeached and had his trial, wasn't even close on any of the articles of impeachment. Right. And if uh, for those of you who think, well, you're, you're forgetting Richard Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon had an impeachment inquiry, uh, uh, but he resigned. Before he resigned before he could actually even be impeached. impeached. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not going to ask you to predict the future, but... But you're going to ask me to predict it. No, I'm no. going to ask you whether or not you think all of this acrimony that we've been seeing, as you said, uh, practically since day one of President Trump's inauguration, has fu- is fund- fundamentally changed the way the politics is being practiced on um, on basically any level. I think it has. I think that's a it's an astute observation that we've always had rancor in politics. I mean, you can look back at the earliest days of the United States government. And as soon as it wasn't George Washington, and you really had a choice between other people other than Washington, there was divide. I mean, the race in 1800 involving Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, one of the most rancorous elections ever. I think one thing that was a good sign for the United States was at that time, even though it was such a hard-fought election, the election results were accepted. John Adams didn't try to stay in office. He left. He, did, he didn't stick around for Jefferson's inaugural. He was out of town by the time it happened. But uh, there was the peaceful transition to power, and we've always seen that in the U.S. But I think we are seeing this level of constant battle. I mean, look back even in our own lifetime, uh, Ronald Reagan now is venerated as this great president. But at the time, he was very much vilified by mm-hmm. Democrats. But you know, there were some, still some areas of common agreement. There were, even though people didn't like Reagan, they didn't. They disliked a lot of the things he was doing. A number of Democrats would go along with Reagan on certain things. It seems that we're at the point now where, if you are a Republican who looks at something that a Democrat does and says, you know, that kind of sounds like a good idea. Maybe we should explore that. You're immediately branded as a traitor or a rhino, and and, yeah. and those who are the, the partisan police will want to kick you out, and vice versa. If Donald Trump's doing something or if a Republican's doing something and a Democrat says, sounds like maybe it's a good idea, something to explore. Maybe I don't like exactly what he's saying, but something along that lines might work. If you're... If you even approach it that way and not just that Donald Trump is evil incarnate and we need to get rid of him, then the Democrats are going to try to drum you out of their camp. Yeah, and I guess since this is somewhat, you know, such personality-based, it kind of um, prohibits someone from saying, oh, that that's a good idea, as opposed to, well, who's saying it? Right. And that kind of determines. Our guest is Mitch Kokai. He is a senior political analyst for uh, the John Locke Foundation, and an alumni, a proud alumni of Curtis uh, Media Group, uh, spent his formative years uh, uh, back when he was uh, young and just a young pump out of UNC Chapel Hill. And in fact, we'll talk a little bit about the media when we come back. 
Well, Jason, I've got to tell you, you're pretty much everything this company is looking for in an entry-level candidate. Great. Your resume isn't quite what we're used to, but you've got a fantastic work ethic. Thank you. And I'm impressed by how you carry yourself. So, should we talk about the job? Uh, what? The job? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I have no way of recruiting or even meeting you. This interview didn't happen. It may sound ridiculous, and that's because it kind of is. There's a huge pool of talent your company is missing out on. Meet the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Man, we really could have used him. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Wow, that's a lot of books. <laughs> Little one at home. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Childproofing your home, childproofing your yard, childproofing your in-law's home and yard. Of all the things you can read to keep your child safe, the most important is attached to their car seat. Read the instruction manual and use the latch system. It makes it easier to be sure your child's car seat is installed correctly. Learn more at safercar.gov. Anchor, tether, latch. The next generation of child safety. A message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, Rick Martinez in for uh, Don Curtis on this edition. Speaking with Mitch Kokai of the uh, John Locke Foundation, uh, you are a, a proud uh, graduate of the University of North Carolina School of Journalism and uh, Mass Communication. And uh, in fact, you have uh, got uh, high honors while you, while you were there. You've also spent... Um, a number of years in the media, um, both the radio and television, uh, right here at the WPTF back in the day, and also uh, WCHL, and again, a very legendary radio station uh, out at uh, Chapel Hill. So give us your impression of the national news media uh, today, and then I'll ask you about local as well. Well, it seems like the national news media today is uh, really caught up in a problem of aligning itself too closely with one ideology or the other. And, and I am distinguishing between reporters and the folks who are out there doing the talk shows. The yeah. talk shows, I, no one sees them as reporters, straight journalism, nor should they, because that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to advance a particular view and a particular agenda. But even if you look beyond that to the reporters and anchors, it seems that in the national media, there's there's so much opinion that's in the reporting and it's so biased one way or the other that people have decided okay, if I'm a conservative, I need to watch Fox News. And even then, I might get mad because sometimes they aren't going rah-rah for, for President Trump or for the Republicans. And on the other side, if I'm a Democrat, I'm only going to watch CNN or MSNBC, and I'm never going to watch Fox because those folks are, are evil and, and want to uh, trumpet the Republicans. I think the other issue that you have is because we have advanced beyond the time frame when we had just the, the network nightly news that had sort of a straight half-hour program of news story after news story. But now we've ventured into this era of the 24-hour news cycle 
when you've got talk shows, you've got news shows, and there's kind of a, a melding and mixing. And a lot of what the news shows do is have an anchor talking to a talking head who's on the left or right. It becomes harder to distinguish between the commentary and the actual news. And I, and I think that that is to the detriment of the folks who want to do news and want to try to be objective to the extent that that's possible. Do you think the uh, folks and uh, the, the leaders uh, in the uh, national news scene see that? And, you know, do, do they see it that way? And, and are we kind of uh, past the point of no return? Or, or do you think it's possible one day to have some sort of uh, basic realignment? I think you could have a basic realignment, and I'm not sure that the folks who actually run these news outfits see it. Sometimes they do, and sometimes you'll get a sense that they that they know, wait a minute, that's what we just did in this case is over the line. But in, in terms of the general way that they operate, I don't think that they see that they're hurting themselves by lining up on one side or the other. Um. You, uh, your background and your experience is in broadcast journalism, both radio and television. But do you have an opinion about the decline of uh, newspapers? And has that been just a sign of the times? Or is journalism uh, less rich because of the decline of uh, newspapers? Well, it certainly is less rich. And this is a story that actually goes back many years. I remember sitting in a history of journalism class in the early 1990s. So mm-hmm. we're getting up upwards of 30 years ago. And at that time, they were talking about the decline of newspapers. Newspapers yeah, have, been, have been declining for a long time, but really in the last decade or maybe even the last five or six years, that decline has become more precipitous. And not only does that mean that your newspaper is 12 or 14 or 16 pages, everything, News, sports, yeah. ads, uh, entertainment, all of it is, is short, so you have fewer stories. But it also means that the people writing the news tend to be younger and less experienced. And not to knock them at all, because they, they tend to be smart young people, yeah. but they don't have the experience. And they haven't been to the rodeo more than a few times, and so no when they're being played. I mean, I, I'll read stories in a newspaper sometimes and say, yeah, if, if this had been a reporter with 20, 25 years of experience, they would have seen the press release that this was based on and said, yeah, I'm just being spun <laughs> rather than, rather than say, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to follow, I'm going to write exactly what they told me. And this has to be true because some government official told me it was true. Uh, it, it certainly hurts when, all of your reporters tend to be young and inexperienced, and that's what you see when the, the newspaper industry is declining. I mean, look in our own area. There are so many people who just four or five years ago were writing for the big Raleigh paper who have now and gone. And Charlotte paper. And Charlotte well. paper, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and we remember when they were competitors. That's right. And yeah. so they were. if you were looking at a big story in North Carolina news – the Raleigh News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer were competing, and that competition led to better coverage. Now it's the same outfit, and oftentimes just one person will be working for the two papers, and it might be a person who only has four or five years' experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's true. And the other thing, too, is, is that uh, – and, and I'd like your thoughts on this – is that 
Another uh, dilemma that um, newspapers are finding is is that some of the better paying jobs are actually in in public relations, particularly government public relations. So you, it's not unusual to see uh, a really good, experienced reporter end up. Well, I'll just you know, give you an example. Patrick Gannon, of I was course, just thinking was the a, same thing when you said you know that. was a fabulous uh, reporter, uh, fair, fair, and uh, and uh, excellent, good writer, and got the facts and so forth, and uh, reported on state government, and now he's working for the uh, state elections board mm-hmm. and pretty much says, all right, this is when the meetings are, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, again, that's kind of just a – so do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. that the, Because the newspaper industry is in decline, it makes it so that people who are well-qualified will be looking for these other jobs. I think another thing that we haven't yet mentioned that's important is you, you mentioned the fact that I worked in radio and TV news, and there's a lot of reporting that's done in radio and TV news, but frankly also TV news and to some extent radio news get a lot of their news from newspapers. Right. So if the mm-hmm, newspaper sure. isn't cranking out really high-quality material, that r- has a ripple effect throughout the rest of the media. You know, you're in a unique position with the John Locke Foundation because – the John Locke Foundation has a radio show. It has um, uh, does a lot of. You can get a lot of news on the various blogs and um, that you have, and then you have a digital product with Carolina Journal dot org, right? Dot com. Dot com. Sorry, and then you actually put out a, a print um, 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 product, Carolina Journal, once a month that you were talking about earlier. Is there a difference in approach or and and reporting or is it all a matter of formatting it's primarily formatting now one of the things that's a that that we benefit from that the standard newspapers that we've been talking about don't is that we rely on our donors Mm -hmm. so we're not having to chase the advertising dollars we kind of know what we're going to have uh, available to us but um, also uh, although we can help fill some gaps as the traditional news media are cutting back on their coverage of news. We couldn't be a replacement for what was the, the standard norm 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We're never going to be to the point where we're go- going to be the equivalent of 10 reporters down there at the General Assembly competing with each other for the best stories. At most, we're going to have two or three people at one time covering what's going on with the General Assembly, and we're going to be competing with ourselves, which is not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, let's uh, talk a little bit of uh, policy. Uh, we don't have a state budget, and the world has not ended, and things are, are seem to be going along fine. And outside of uh, dueling news conferences, you know, it, uh, it is seriously since you you know you're the policy guy, does it really matter that we don't have a state budget? The short answer is no. And the reason that this is true is the General Assembly had some good foresight a couple of years ago to pass a law that said if there was no new budget on July 1st at the beginning of a new budget year, the old budget provisions would remain in effect. So as long as that law remains in place, we're never going to have to worry about the thing that you hear about occasionally at the federal level and that we used to hear about at the state level that Come June 30th, if there was no budget in place, we might have some sort of government shutdown. You'd mm-hmm. have to close offices. People would have to uh, stay home and not be able to work, not collect their paychecks. 
uh, I think that was a, a great decision on the part of the General Assembly to, to take that sort of political gamesmanship out of the budget. And you referenced the fact that the world is continuing to turn. Most people don't even notice it because pretty much everything has gone on as it normally uh, would. Now, we should also point out that in addition to not having a permanent new $24 billion general fund budget for the budget year that started July 1st, there have been some mini budgets, standalone budgets, piecemeal budgets. Explain explain what a mini budget is. Those budgets, and there have been several of them passed and signed into law by Governor Cooper, deal with specific provisions that were in the budget that he vetoed. Mm-hmm. Uh, to remind folks who haven't been following this that closely, and if you don't, I don't blame you. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if it were my job, I'd probably only pay a little bit of attention to it. But the General Assembly approved a budget. Governor Cooper vetoed that budget. There were a number of reasons, but the, the main reasons appear to be, one, that the budget did not include expansion of the Medicaid program, which was a top priority for Governor Cooper. Also, uh, that he wanted a larger pay raise for his teachers in public schools. The General Assembly approved a, a substantial pay raise. Governor Cooper wanted an even larger one. And then also, this has sort of gotten the, the short shrift in this debate, but there was a a bone of contention about whether school construction in North Carolina should proceed with a statewide school bond, which is what Governor Cooper wanted, or with this use of something called the State Capital and Infrastructure Fund, which the General Assembly preferred, in which they would take uh, money that was already in the budget and devote about 4% of it to school construction needs so you wouldn't have to borrow new money from sort school of a pay bond. as you go type pay thing. as you go plan exactly mm-hmm. and the idea was as you pay down the debt that the state has more money would be available for the construction in years ahead and they spelled out a 10-year program of how you could go about uh, dealing with some of these projects that would be similar to the type of program you'd come up with a bond so they were very similar one would continue spending the same amount that we do and borrow more through the bond the General Assembly's plan, in contrast, would say, no, we're not going to borrow any more money. We're just going to reprioritize and spend some of the money that we already are spending on school construction. So the governor had had his veto, and then the General Assembly tried to override the veto uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks, had no success, and then in a very controversial move, the state house, without many Democrats present, voted to override the veto, and now the Senate— may at some point in the not-too-distant future vote to override the veto. But in the meantime, uh, these mini-budgets have come along, and they have dealt with specific provisions that seem to have unanimous or near-unanimous support. Big pay raises for state employees, not including teachers, but other state employees, highway patrol, uh, ALE, uh, funding for things like testing rape kits and and uh, school safety, things that had general widespread support, those have been passed so that the provisions in the budget that do have widespread support could go forward even as these other contentious items continue. That's uh, Mitch Kokai. He's senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. We'll continue our conversation when we return here on Carolina Newsmakers. Hey, Dr. Phil here. I help people solve difficult and trying personal problems every day on my TV show, but there's one problem that's just got me stumped. Childhood hunger. Nearly 16 million children in America struggle with it. 
That's one in five kids who may not know where their next meal is coming from, despite the fact that there's more than enough healthy, nutritious food out there to feed them all. Now, I don't know about you, but that is unacceptable to me. Luckily, the Feeding America network of good people is out there collecting surplus food and giving hope to hungry children and their families at local food banks all across the country. But let's face it, they can't do it without your help. Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I know more about cooking dinner for a party of 12 than about packing a lunch for a 12-year-old. I know kids like things like fish sticks. Filets, I get, but sticks? Maybe we can just compromise on mac and cheese. Can you make that with Brie? You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Rick Martinez in for Don Curtis on this edition, speaking with uh, Mitch Kokai, who's senior political analyst of the uh, John Locke Foundation, just talked about the fact that we do not have a budget, uh, but a bunch of uh, mini uh, budgets. Does anybody win politically uh, if uh, we don't have uh, a state budget? And Because I believe it was... Uh, Senate President Phil Berger said uh, that he wants everybody out of town by October 31st. And if um, is that going to provide any incentive for people to sign a budget? You know, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out politically. I, I don't know that there's going to be a huge winner from the Republicans' perspective. They don't have to have as much new spending as would have been spelled out in that new budget, which could be a good or a bad thing, although they have approved the money for the pay raises. But they also don't get the tax cuts. There were tax cuts built into that budget, once again knocking down— That's a good point. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, once again knocking down the, the a, a couple of the major rates, and that's not something that is going to survive a Governor Cooper veto. So that wouldn't move forward. I think it's going to be, to some extent, a wash because so many people haven't even been paying attention to the budget debate. Who will get blamed? The, the, the one area that I think could be ripe for some, some political debate here is teacher pay raises. I mean, teachers have been very quiet so far. about. Exa- this. Yeah. I mean, they were obviously very vocal. They have been for the past couple of years holding these big marches about their priorities and the General Assembly approved another substantial pay raise. Governor Cooper wants an even larger pay raise. Right now, they haven't had any pay raise. And since this impasse started between the governor and uh, the General Assembly, we've heard nary a peep from the NCAE, the North Carolina Association of Educators. They've said not much of anything, nor have rank-and-file teachers, and they're not getting any pay raises Uh I suspect that part of that is because, uh, at least from the NCAE, they have aligned themselves with the governor. So uh, to to um, to come out and say something at this point basically uh, would be poking the General Assembly, which has an incentive at this point not to do anything. 
and just to go home and not give them any raise. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think they want to stir them up even more than they than they already have by aligning themselves with Governor Cooper. But if this impasse goes on, if in fact Phil Berger, as you alluded to, says we're going home October 31st and we're done for the year and teachers don't get any pay raise, at some point they're going to come out and say, wait a minute, <laughs> they're either going to say, General Assembly, you guys are a bunch of jerks, which the General Assembly say, will say back to them, you've been saying that as uh, about you've been saying that about us for years. So <laughs> what's different? Or they'll go to Governor Cooper and say, "Look, we know what you wanted, and we know that we supported you on Medicaid expansion, but can you relent a little bit so we can get a pay raise?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, something's going to happen there. But otherwise, you know, the the only people who are griping, or who or who could be griping because there's no budget, are the people who will get some goodies from the government. So. Uh, people who are expecting to get some sort of state grant mm-hmm. who don't get it because there's no budget, they might complain. But I think most folks will say, well, that's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take on the uh, b- the big issue, Medicaid expansion. Yeah. Um, good idea or bad idea for North Carolina? Oh, bad idea for North Carolina for a number <clears throat> of reasons. Uh, the Medicaid program has long been uh, a, a real cost driver in North Carolina. It's only been in recent years that the General Assembly and the department is really kind of took off under uh, your former boss, Pat McCrory, mm-hmm. uh, that they finally got some cost controls on the Medicaid program, so there's some predictability. People with short memories are not going to remember that four or five years ago, well, maybe even longer ago than that, six or seven years ago, uh, it was hard to predict how much money you would have for education for prison, for everything else, Mm -hmm. because Medicaid was not only costing more and more each year, it was unpredictable how much more it was going to cost. And so it it took away from from money that could be spent on other priorities. And really, it's only been since the Republicans took control of the General Assembly, and it took them a few years, it wasn't like day one, took them a few years to finally get a handle on Medicaid spending adding half million more new people or, or more than that new people to the roles of Medicaid could be another big cost driver. And of course the supporters of Medicaid expansion have said, wait a minute, almost all of that money is being paid by the federal government. Only about 10% of it is a North Carolina match. And we're going to match it not from the regular taxpayer, but from new fees charged to the hospitals and the hospitals will go along with it because they're going to get some of that Medicaid money, and it should be a net gain for them. That's that's their argument that, hey, it's not really costing taxpayers. Uh, but I think the, the leaders of the General Assembly are saying, yeah, but I don't think that's a deal that's going to last for a long time. Because the Medicaid program, as it exists without expansion, is basically in the neighborhood of a two-to-one match. The federal government picks up about two out of every three dollars and that's for vulnerable populations that's for the disabled uh kids the elderly the people with disabilities uh, the people that Mm -hmm. medicaid was really designed for whereas the expansion population is primarily not entirely but primarily childless able-bodied working age adults and so at some point Someone who's in charge of Medicaid is going to say, do we really want to have a 90% match for the people who are probably most likely to be able to get insurance on their own, whereas we have only a 67% 
match or two to one ratio for the really vulnerable populations. That's that's not a situation that's going to have long term viability. And so at some point, North Carolina, if it did expand, would be on the hook for much more money. Plus, Medicaid itself has other problems like the fact that a lot of doctors don't want to take Medicaid because the reimbursement rate so low. So finding a way to help the people who fall into a coverage gap, that's an important goal. Doing it through Medicaid expansion not probably the best way to do it. The um, Republicans in the General Assembly have come up with a plan. The alternative is called Carolina Cares. I'm trying to remember whether or not it has a work requirement. But, you know, what does the John Locke Foundation think about the, that alternative? And and then uh, more specifically, uh, what does the John Locke Foundation uh, think about the work requirements for people who get um, some sort of public assistance on their health insurance? Yeah, work requirement would be a good thing. We have not been in favor of what was Carolina Cares, and it's changed its name again. I mm-hmm. believe it's North Carolina North Carolina Healthcare for Working Families or something like that. But yeah. but it is the Carolina Cares idea, and you're right that uh, that had two things that differentiated the Republican version of Medicaid expansion from the one that Governor Cooper and legislative Democrats want. One is the work requirement; the other is a premium. And both of those are included in uh, in the Republican version, which has some support, at least within the state house, might be able to get through the state house. State Senate leaders have said they're not interested in it at all. Um, Phil Berger, in his most recent pronouncement about this, has said, well, you know, we'll, if this can get through the house, and that's a big if, but if it gets through the house, we'll, we'll look at it. But he has not signaled any interest and has not said that his Senate Republican caucus has any interest in dealing with that proposal. But in terms of that bill, uh, we've not uh, at the Locke Foundation have not been on board with it because to us, it's basically the, all the bad points about Medicaid expansion are still there. Mm-hmm. Having a work requirement and having a premium would make something bad a little less bad, but it still is not something that we'd be on board supporting. Well, I know that um, the John Locke Foundation has a, a gentleman whose uh, primary job is to take a look at health care. Um, and it seems to me that Medicaid expansion, whether you're for or against it, Carolina Cares, whether you're for or against it, basically deals with insurance. It doesn't necessarily deal with health care costs and so forth and prescription drugs. And, you know, you see uh, President Trump and Elizabeth Warren saying, you know, we're going to go after those big, bad uh, drug prices and all that sort of stuff. Um, are these approaches uh, actually uh, effective? I'm not sure that they're <clears throat> going to be effective at addressing the, the real major problem, and that mm-hmm. is access to health care. I mean, insurance, that was one of the interesting things about the Affordable Care Act is that its emphasis was almost entirely on insurance. Mm, yeah. And the idea was if you get more people insurance, then you're going to solve the problem. Well, no, not really. I mean, it's, I think everyone who, who has a serious notion about addressing the issue says, we don't want people to be in a situation where they're going to have a major health emergency and it's going to wipe them out. So the insurance yeah. piece yeah. is important, but you don't have to address the insurance piece by just saying, okay, let's put everyone on Medicaid, or even the the proposal now, the Medicare for all, which uh, Bernie Sanders and others have, mm-hmm. have come up aboard with that. I mean, the the real issue is 
access to care, and a lot of that is supply. I mean, we need more people providing services and more people providing the the types of medication that that folks need. I mean, it, the cost you're not going to address the cost unless you address increasing supply too, and also recognizing that the more people who have access to the insurance, the more they're going to want the services. I mean, one of the things that stops people from going to the doctor now if they don't have insurance is, how am I going to pay for it? And that's a bad situation to be in. But if you do give them the ability to pay for it, then they're going to want more services. There's just a, as night follows day, if people have more access to an ability to pay for the services, they're going to want more services. Not everyone's going to you know, run to the doctor every day, but some people are going to run to the doctor for things that they let go now. And if you don't increase the supply of healthcare, then what you're going to end up with is what we've seen in some other areas that have more universal health insurance, and that is rationing. Because if you have a lot more people clamoring for the same amount of services, that means Mm -hmm. you have to find a way to Mm -hmm. ration who's actually going to get it. And shocker, it's probably going to end up with a situation that the people who are able to pay more are going to be able to get something that everyone else will not. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that's happened in other sectors. <laughs> our um, our guest is uh, Mitch Kokai. He's senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation, and uh, we'll return uh, from our final se- uh, for our final segment after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. In the news, a small boy was rescued from abuse today by a magic trick. Witnesses say a bully had the boy pinned down. Scott was hitting Jimmy pretty hard, and I said somebody should do something. Moments later, a street magician arrived on the scene. Police reports state he covered the bully with his coat. What happened next is still under investigation. The bully turned into a bunch of kittens. The victim left the scene unharmed. Boy, you never see that happen. That's because it doesn't. If you see abuse or neglect, learn what you can do from American Humane at BeHumane.org. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Rick Martinez and for Don Curtis on uh, this edition, speaking with uh, Mitch Kokai, Senior Political Analyst for the John Locke Foundation. Now, I know that you are probably one of the few non-judicial people, or I'm sorry, yeah, non-judicial people, that follows our courts uh, rather uh, closely. And uh, first of all, why should anyone pay attention to the courts? And uh, number two, we have had a significant uh, political change on the courts 
uh, address those two issues. At first, I thought you were going to say, why should anyone pay attention to what you have to say about the courts? Which is a good question, because I'm not you a lawyer. You know, lo- that's a good point. Let's move on, <laughs> Mitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a lawyer and uh, have not ever worked in the judiciary and basically only fa- fell into this uh, in some respects, because back when we first started having the political change that you alluded to, I was interested in seeing how that would affect what the Supreme Court has had to, to say about particular cases. And so it turned out that I ended up being about the only person yeah. for a while who was paying attention to how the Supreme Court was ruling and how it broke down politically. Um, and so back to your initial questions, it is important to know what the courts are doing because they have a major say on what the other branches of government are up to. Going back to the days when Pat McCrory was the governor, the Supreme Court had a major uh, ruling in a case called McCrory v. Berger when they ruled in favor of the governor and against the General Assembly in terms of what the governor was able to do in his job Mm -hmm. versus how much the General Assembly could dictate what the governor could do. That had various spillover effects because once Roy Cooper took over as the governor. He relied on the president of McCrory v. Berger to help him in his fights with the General Assembly. And, and he's, he's had a few. And, and he's had many, and he's been largely successful in mm-hmm. the courts at using the president of McCrory v. Berger to help him win in his battles with the General Assembly. So the the, the Supreme Court and the, the courts in general in North Carolina have a great amount of say over what the other two branches are able to do and how much they're able to interfere with each other. And the second part of your question was the major change in the course, and we really have seen that. Um, To give you the short version, several years ago, Republicans had a majority on the state Supreme Court. And in the 2016 election cycle, when there was one Republican Supreme Court justice up for re-election, the Republicans in the General Assembly tried to change the process so there would be a retention election. They lost in court on that. Then, instead of restoring the party labels to the election, they left them off. And on the ballot, the Democrat appeared where the Republicans appeared on every other spot on the ballot. And so the Democrat won that race, knocking the one Republican off. The last election cycle, we had one Republican up for re-election, and because of some other uh, failings of the the General Assembly to get their ducks in a row, we ended up with an election in which there were two Republicans, one of whom was not really a Republican, a Republican in name only, and a Democrat on the ballot. The Democrat wound up winning that race with less than 50% of the vote. And so now, and then shortly after that, Uh, Chief Justice Mark Martin, who was one of the only remaining Republicans, decided to get out of Dodge and become the dean of a law school in Virginia. (laughs) Governor Cooper replaced him with another Democrat. So right now we have six Democrats. Bypassing a uh, a senior Republican (laughs) on the the, court. The only Republican left on the court. So now we have six Democrats, one Republican left on our Supreme Court. And after the 2020 election, because that one Republican is going to be running against the chief justice, I mean, it's entirely possible the way that, uh, depending on the way the elections swing, you could end up with seven Democrats on the Supreme Court. And those Democrats, at least some of them, are not 
not necessarily philosophically aligned with supporting some of the things our Republican General Assembly has done. So the courts could play a major, they have been playing and could continue to play a major role in determining what types of public policies can move forward in North Carolina. Yeah, and um, as a little bit of background, uh, Governor McCrory's beef for the General Assembly was that they would set up these uh, commissions and uh, task it up to the executive branch and and then fill them with a bunch of General Assembly guys. And, right. and Governor McCrory was saying, well, you've given me the responsibility to clean up, uh, you know, a particular problem, but yet you've tied my hands by putting all of your people on there instead of my people. And, you know, and, and in that suit, he also got uh, support from uh, previous governors, Purdue, Easley and uh, Hunt and uh, Governor Martin as, as well to, in that suit. Um now, there has certainly been a lot of political actions on the judiciary with regard to everything that you just said, which has to do with a lot of ballot access and all that sort of stuff. Uh, again, you actually read the opinions of the court and and, uh, and the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals. Have you seen a political bent on any of their decisions? Every once in a while. Uh, you know, until this year, it's been hard except for in the case of Cooper v. Berger, which mm-hmm. was the, the main case pitting the governor against the General Assembly. Other than that one, which came down along party lines, most other cases, there were interesting coalitions and they weren't always partisan. This year with one Republican, Paul Newby, he has been more likely to be the one dissenter in 6-1 cases. But there have been also a lot of cases in which Democrat Anita Earls has been the only dissenter. So it's not always partisan. Mm. And there's shifting coalitions that have to do with the particular judicial issues. But uh, it is going to be interesting to see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Well, what's interesting about that is that uh, that kind of happens on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court oh, as yeah. well. Well, we've been uh, speaking with Mitch Kokai. Mitch, thanks so much for coming in and uh, sharing your expertise with our listeners. We appreciate it very much. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. Always happy to do it. And uh, be here next week when uh, Don Curtis will show up for work for change and uh, host uh, Carolina Newsmakers. Have a good week, everyone. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.